It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Monday, June 1st, 2009. Lots going on. Lots to talk about. Warning, this edition of Fighting for the Faith is going to be politically incorrect. That's right, we're going to ask the question that many people are going to be afraid to ask. Regarding what? Well, stay tuned. We'll talk about it in a second here. All right, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ said, in the last days, make sure that no one deceives you. Therefore, it is our job to compare what people are saying to the Word of God. And by the way, I am not, under any circumstances, exempt from this little exercise. In fact, I know you're doing your job when I get those emails and say, Hey, Chris, you know, you said this and God's Word says that. How do you reconcile that? Those are good questions and absolutely the types of questions that show that you're paying attention and that you're listening. So, but... You know, by the way, it's Monday, and I'm sunburned. Oh, man, am I sunburned. I've got this embarrassing farmer's farmer's tan kind of sunburn thing going on. I'm beginning to think that I need to have my weekend privileges revoked because it's obvious that I'm engaging in self-destructive behavior over the holidays, over the weekends, whenever I get a little bit of time off, Uh, so much so that I was outside without sunscreen. Yeah, that's right. So with my shirt on, it looks like I've got, you know, like a pretty good sunburn going. But you take the the shirt off, which, by the way, I won't do uh, even here on the radio because I could be arrested for public obscenity. Um, But anyway, um, the last thing you all need to do is see the acres of whiteness that that is my body. But uh, I I kid you not, this is a ridiculous farmer's thing going on here. Uh, You know, from about just a little above the elbows down, it's all red. And then from the neck up, it's all red. And... Of course, I was wearing a baseball cap outside, you know, because I love my golf cap. And my forehead is white and my face is red, and I've got the little raccoon thing going on from the sunglasses. And I've got puffy bags under my eyes. It's just terrible. I look like I've been... uh, I don't want to talk about it, but I'm already talking about it. But you get the idea. It's just one of those things. So I'm glad to be back in the saddle uh, glad that uh, during the week I don't have time to go out and and engage in such self-destructive behavior. But I'm looking forward to the upcoming weekend so that I can do it all over again. Hopefully this time I'll be smart enough to put the sun uh, screen on. Anyway, all right, we got an interesting program lined up today. We got just a little bit of listener email. We've got news regarding San Diego County and the whole Bible study flap that's going on there. We've got news about. Uh, Pastors are now chirping in, (laughs) pun intended, regarding whether or not you should be tweeting at church. We got news about the Episcopal leadership over there on the West Coast. They've ousted 61 clergymen. We'll talk about that. And then the politically incorrect question that I've warned you about at the top of the program 
is about George Tiller. Now, George Tiller was, until yesterday, a, a living, breathing, uh, uh, outspoken abortionist in Kansas. And he was famous for his late-term abortions. In fact, some of the stories that I've read said that he performed up to 100 late-term abortions a week. And uh, the headline that came across the wire over the weekend was that George Tiller was gunned down at church, at a church where he served as the um, as an usher, which go, which leads to the politically incorrect question. And I know, listen, we're going to talk about this from a couple of different angles, but one of the angles that we're going to be discussing this later on is what kind of church would make an unrepentant um, uh, unrepentant murderer comfortable in his sin that's the question that we're going to be asking and uh, we'll we'll cover we'll cover this from a couple of different angles but we're going to answer that question today too so if you if you are somebody who doesn't like politically incorrect angles would rather just you know we go we 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 follow that great advice of just everyone get along for the sake of getting along then this is not the program for you turn it off and go listen to Oprah if you really want to tackle tough issues and ask tough questions and think along with tough thoughts uh, then stick around. This is going to be one of those programs. Also today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 15 as we continue our march to the book of Exodus. And then for, to, to round out the program today, rather than doing a sermon review, we're going to be doing, well, it's kind of a sermon of sorts. Uh, Monica Dennington, uh, she's got a ministry on YouTube called TikTok Ministries. Quite a, quite a following, actually. And uh, Monica Dennington recently did a YouTube video where she was calling all Calvinists to repentance. One of our one of my friends on Facebook alerted me to this particular uh, video of Monica's, and so we're going to be reviewing that. Uh, why are we reviewing it? Well, because I think Monica provides us with an opportunity of, of how not to do discernment, and um, there's some irony in it that's that's going to be that's got to be hammered out. And uh, on top of it, since I'm not a Calvinist, I thought I would come to my Calvinist brethren's uh, rescue, so to speak. And, and well, no, they don't, they don't actually need me to come to their rescue. But I thought I'd chime in since I wasn't a Calvinist because I don't necessarily have a dog in the fight. But I do, uh, in a way, because it, it touches on the Word of God and how to correctly handle God's Word. So stay tuned. to be all kinds of stuff. We're going to be listening to Monica's uh, video on calling all Calvinists to repentance. Uh. So lots and lots going on. Starting off today, got an email uh, that came in from Andy, and it says, hey, "Chris, I've been uh, I've been behind on my podcast lately, and I just got to the Phyllis Tickles teaching on the Holy Spirit." Now, by the way, uh, don't feel bad if you fall behind in your podcasting. We produce quite a few hours of listening every single week, so if you fall behind, don't worry about it. You listen to Fighting for the Faith on your time, on your schedule, and sometimes just pick the topics that. That work for you if that's what's necessary. But here we go. Uh, he says, I have a question that I thought, I, I've thought about a few times is this. Can Satan set up false prophets and enable them to predict the future? Does Satan know the future? He says, okay, so I, I guess that was two questions. Anyways, I was just curious, and I had I never sat down and studied. And, I, and as a side note, 
uh, when you said mystical monks, I thought there's got to be a Marty Python sketch in there somewhere. <laughs> Rest assured that we are in we are in the process of writing and producing new Marty Python sketches as we speak. In fact, uh, my son, who was who helps out with so many of the voices for Marty Python, will be coming home uh, in just uh, about a week and a half for his first real long, uh, long scheduled leave since joining the Navy. And uh, he's, we've got some Marty Python stuff that we're going to be doing when he gets here. But going back to your question, Andy, you asked the question, you asked asked two questions. Can Satan set up false prophets and enable them to predict the future? Does Satan know the future? Now, both questions, you have to be handled carefully. And I got to understand this, that um, we don't know much about Satan, not not as much as you would think, all right, um, and what he can do or what he can't do, and there's a lot of people who like to speculate or philosophize, you know, er, you know, kind of extrapolate out, you know, from what we do know in the scripture. So you got to be careful that you that when you take a look at what Satan does and does not do, or can and cannot do, that it's firmly grounded in God's word, that it's not bringing in other sources. For instance, we could say that. You know, the Maya taught that Satan could do such and such. Now, here's the problem, okay? The Maya may or may or may, or may not be correct in what Satan can and cannot do. But, see, without a sure word from God, without really something laid out clearly in the Scriptures that says Satan can do this or can't do that, we begin to engage in what's called speculative theology and or otherwise philosophy. Now, with that in mind... We turn to Acts chapter 16 to kind of take on the first part of your two part or your two questions here. Now, I'm going to in Acts chapter 16, we hear of Paul's um, journey to Philippi. Okay. And um, we read starting at Acts chapter 16, verse 16. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Okay? She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, to answer your question, first question was, can Satan set up false prophets and enable them to predict the future? The answer is yes. The, and I base it on this passage. Now, when you look at what's going on here in the, in the passage... In the Greek, um, it says that this girl had a, a spirit of of python or python. Um, it's where we get the Greek word python, uh, where we get the word python from, and it's really interesting. And let me read to you some of the definitions that go along with this word uh, python. It says um, uh, the serpent or the dragon that was uh, guarded at the Delphic Oracle. It lived at the foot of Mount Parsonus and was uh, slain by Apollo. Later, the word. Uh, came to designate a spirit of divination, and then also ventriloquists were believed to have such a spirit. Okay, so what's funny here is that in this passage, this this girl, the slave girl, somehow says that she has a spirit of divination, and it it, it comes back to, 
its origin is has to do with the Oracle at Delphi. Okay, and the Oracle at Delphi, if you're not familiar with that, um, was a uh, it, it's a temple. It was a temple. And apparently there was gases, there was volcanic gases that were being released in this area. They built a temple over it, and what they, what would happen is, is that the priestesses would inhale this, these gases and go into some kind of an ecstatic state, and then the priests would interpret the, what would, what it is that they were saying, you know, as a result of having inhaled these gases. Just just so you know, and so the the spirit of divination there was the spirit of. Pythos or Python, and and so it says that this girl here had this servant. So somehow, in some way, she's connected to uh, what's going on there. And what happened is, is that she was able to engage in fortune telling and somehow know the future. And what's funny here is, is that when she followed Paul and she's crying out, "These men are servants of the Most High God to proclaim you the way of salvation." This harkens back to Jesus' earthly ministry where the demons would say, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Over and over and over again, keep in mind, humans, um, when they would see Jesus, they didn't really know who he was at all. Oh, it's just a good guy. He's a, he's a prophet. He's this. He's that. But the demons always knew who he was. So here we got Paul blowing into Philippi and experiencing something similar to what Jesus experienced, and that here this girl who has this demonic spirit, she identifies Paul as a servant of the Most High God who's there to proclaim the way of salvation. Now, before you said there, well, wait, look, this demon is uh, is being beneficial, right? Whoever is, isn't, is, isn't against us is for us kind of thinking. No, 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 understand, just the very words themselves. These men are servants of the Most High God, uh, the, the Greeks back then, uh, people in Macedonia, believed in a, a pantheon of gods. And so here you have this demonic spirit saying that these gentle, these guys follow the Most High God. Oh, we'll just add him into the one, you know, to the many of the many gods that we worship and, and, and obey and serve. Okay, so she wasn't really doing him a favor. So she was possessed. She was fortune-telling. She was, t- well, in a way, telling the future, and she recognized who Paul and uh, his entourage were. And um, so the quest is that, that I think that answers the first question. So can Satan set up false prophets and enable them to predict the future? Yes. Does Satan know the future? Now, this is where, um, now, I do, I'm not aware of any passage of Scripture that makes it clear that Satan knows the future in the way that God knows the future. God knows the beginning from the end. He knew who he elected from the foundations of the earth. Okay, so before the earth's foundations were ever laid, he knew uh, who, who, who the elect were at that point. Satan, as far as I'm aware, okay, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that he has that kind of knowledge. Now, that being said... Okay, we don't know the source of Satan's, uh, we don't know, the. well, there could be a couple of sources. One is something that he's overheard God say, understand he's had access to the throne room of God. Uh, That would be one source of his knowledge of the future, Uh, God revealed, revealing to him what the future was, and or Satan, through his demons, somehow manipulating events 
to a particular end. That's another possibility. However, there's nothing definitive that I'm aware of in the scripture that says that Satan can really truly know the future. Um, and so we have to be careful at this point because we're engaging in some kind of speculative theology. But again, so on the one hand, yes, he sets up false prophets and enables them to predict the future. And does he know the future? Only in so far, I would say only in so far as it's been revealed to him or he's able to manipulate uh, events in, you know, to, to particular ends. That's what I would basically say. Now, can I back up that, that, that second, those second things? Not really at least not clearly from scripture. So I got to be real careful there and you need to be careful there. The important thing is, is that, um, uh, we have authority as Christians over Satan. And uh, I don't like to spend a lot of time talking about Satan and what it is he can or cannot do. Cause one of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this too, Andy, is that a lot of people really major in the minors and, and if you're going to major in something, major in the gospel, major in Christ, major in what it is that the apostles did, major in that stuff. As far as I'm concerned, when I read the gospels, when I read, um, uh, when I read the scriptures, Satan has made an appearance, and it's it's clear he's the enemy. And the scripture doesn't spend a lot of times, a lot of time telling us what the what the big grand plan or the tiny little nitty gritty details of Satan's plans are. Why should it? Because we're on the winning team. If you confess Christ, you believe in him and trust in him for your salvation, then as far as I'm concerned, Satan is a defeated foe. And, I mean, he's about as relevant if you as, you know, the, the losing football team from the Super Bowl of four years ago. Can you name it? I couldn't even name the losing football team from the Super Bowl from four years ago. Who cares? You know, so that's kind of my thinking on it. But yeah, can he do those things? Yeah, if, if you run into if you run into a girl or a, a guy who's predicting the future, um, chances are Satan that's at, that's at work there. Preach the gospel to them, and uh, and take authority in such a way, and you'll mess up their life just the way the Apostle Paul messed up their life. So, all right, there you have it. Okay, moving along here to our news. Uh, Got to get to our vintage news music. Uh, from the Christian Post, we read, San Diego County allows Bible studies to continue in home. <laughs> we commented on this last week. We played a, an excerpt from the, actually, we played the news story from Channel 10 News there in San Diego County. Now the Christian Post is, is letting us know that San Diego County has backed down from shutting down a home Bible study after receiving a flood of complaints from people concerned that the county is attempting to muzzle religious expression. Apparently they felt the heat there, and uh, and so what do they do? They back down. There's a lot more to this story, by the way. And what's funny is is that when we played the news story, you remember there's always two sides to a story? You know, when we uh, played the news story from Channel 10, we didn't really get the county's side of the story. Well, the the folks at the Christian Post, this is uh, Nathan Black, who's a Christian Post reporter who put this together, actually covers a little bit of the other side of the story. But let me continue with, with this uh, from the Christian Post. He's, quote, no one respects the right to free religious expression more than I do. And no one would find the infringement of such rights more important, uh, ab abhorrent, said County Chief Administrative Officer Walt Eckhard. 
He said in a statement on Friday, Eckhart said dozens of emails and calls have come into his office as media reports revealed that a county employee told a local couple they could not hold their weekly Bible study without a permit. Yeah, that permit would have cost him like 10 grand. The employee labeled the Bible study as a, quote, religious assembly. In a warning letter, Pastor David Jones and his wife, Mary, were ordered to cease and stop religious assembly on a parcel or obtain a major use permit. The Joneses, along with dozens of others, argue that their right to hold the Bible, uh, Bible studies is protected by the U.S. Constitution. While many saw the county's attempt as an infringement upon their right to assemble peaceably and privately in their home, uh, Eckhard stressed that the county has never tried to stifle religious expression and never will. This is a land issue, Eckhart stated, and not an issue of religious expression. I deeply regret that the routine code enforcement issue has transformed into a debate over religious freedom in San Diego County, he said. The county had received complaints from a neighbor about traffic and parking issues resulting from the weekly Bible studies, Eckhart noted. Now, this is important, okay? Now, if you go back and you listen to last week's edition of Fighting for the Faith, last week's, well, one of the editions, I forget this, the date off the top of my head, where we covered this, that was only one half of the story, and that was really from the point of view of the pastor and the people holding the Bible study. Well, as it turns out, uh, the bigger issue that we didn't know about, actually it wasn't the bigger issue, it was the smaller issue, was that a neighbor was complaining about the parking situation. So the the neighbor decided to take it up into their own hands and decided that they were going to make this a county zoning issue, a religious assembly. So you have a neighbor who ratted on these the Bible study people, and I did a little bit of further research. It turns out the Joneses live uh, on a cul-de-sac. So on cul-de-sacs, well, um, how do you put it? Parking's a premium. And so basically, it just it was a neighbor who was just inconvenienced and upset, and so the the county handled, you know, took, you know, decided they would address the issue. How it was handled, though, wasn't handled properly, and this is a classic case of what happens when you have when you have a law that touches on or could potentially infringe on a right. Okay, so how do you navigate between two, you know, the two issues? You know, on the one hand. You know, parking and zoning and things like that, those are valid county concerns. On the other hand, what happens when parking and zoning and issues like that infringe upon your constitutional right to religious assemblies and to religious expression? So I'm glad to hear that San Diego County decided that they were going to back down. And this Eckerd guy sounds like he's got a level head on his shoulder. Anyway, let me continue. The county had received complaints from a neighbor about traffic and parking issues resulting from the weekly Bible studies. Eckerd noted, Pastor Jones believes the complaint was prompted when a Bible study member hit the car belonging to a neighbor's visitor and Jones paid for the car damage. <laughs> uh, Dean Broyles, president of the Western Center for Law and Policy based in Escondido, California, which is representing the Joneses, believes the county's insistence that this is a parking issue is fabricated. Interesting. Broyles told the Union Tribune that the officer had asked the couple such question as, do you sing? Do you say praise the Lord? Eckert is reviewing the officer's actions and reexamining the policies and procedures the county uses to deal with such complaints. 
If the officer is found to have acted inappropriately, Eckhard said that he would take action immediately. And uh, let me be clear, religious intolerance in any form is not and never will be allowed under any circumstances in San Diego County government, Eckert underscored. Until the county finds a solution to the matter, the Joneses will be allowed to continue their Bible studies. So there you have it. A win? Yes. Was it a little more complicated than previously reported? Yes. But I'm glad to hear that, uh, that things are going to be just fine and that San Diego County is not going to be cracking down on Bible studies. That would actually be a very bad thing. However, that being said, just wait. It'll happen somewhere else in the country real soon. All right. Um, moving along here, another story in the Christian Post. Pastors are saying, hear God's word, tweet later. Many pastors and church leaders have nothing against Twittering and see it as a useful tool for Christians. But when it comes to weekend worship services, some are telling churchgoers to keep their thumbs still. When you are in corporate worship, says John Piper, a prominent evangelical pastor and author, there's a difference between communion with God and commenting on communion with God. Since its launch in 2006, Twitter has grown to 32 million users, including an active following of pastors and churchgoers. The microblogging service is touted as the fastest-growing social networking site just a year ago. Twitter traffic was at 2 million. Considering the popularity, especially among young adults and youth, some churches have embraced the technological and cultural phenomenon and incorporated it into their worship services. In earlier Time Magazine articles cited, among other churches, West Winds Community Church in Jackson, Michigan, where worshipers' tweets during worship are flashed on large video screens. But reports of Twittering in church have sparked a debate among pastors and Christians on whether it's appropriate. While I personally enjoy Twitter and find it to be a useful tool for sharing and receiving information, I'm not excited about encouraging people to use Twittering during the Sunday meeting. Josh Harris, senior pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, wrote in his blog, One of the reasons why Harris won't be encouraging his congregation to Twitter during worship is that it will likely be distracting. Twitterers may be tempted to check their email or read their Twitter feed during a sermon. Their mind may also focus on what to tweet rather than on worship. Moreover, the minutes they take to tweet would be minutes in which they weren't actively listening to the sermon. Now, I've got to point this out here. Now, uh, Josh Harris, who is the senior pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, I completely agree with him uh, up, to this, up to a point, and that is, is that those people who are Twittering during church could definitely be distracted from listening to the sermon. However, uh, that being said, considering the the abominations that we <laughs> listen to and review as far as sermons are concerned, that actually might be a way of protecting people from these really bad sermons. Um, so I think we need to basically put it this way. In Christ-centered, biblical churches, where the pastor understands that his job is to preach the word to administer the sacraments, and to find Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins from every passage of Scripture, from every section of the Scripture, we definitely want to discourage Twittering uh, during church, uh, during at those types of churches, because you're right, that would actually be bad, because then people are not hearing about the law to convict them of their sins, and they're not hearing about the wonderful message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified from our sins, because they're distracted by Twittering. Now, that being said, 
in the seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven churches, I say Twitter away. It may actually be a way of protecting people from false doctrine. And with that said, we're going to take our first break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our news uh, looking at the Episcopal leadership that's ousted uh, 61 clergymen. We'll talk about that story. And then we got that politically incorrect story that we're going to be covering regarding George Tiller asking the question, what kind of church would make an unrepentant abortionist feel like God was okay with his sin, with his murder? So, again, guaranteed to be a little bit on the um, politically incorrect side. I want to warn you ahead of time. And if you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's right. We Twitter here. Name there is Pirate Christian. You can receive our subversive microblogging tweets on a daily basis. All right. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. Well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, yes. I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, What does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? 
Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today.
All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith on a fine Monday afternoon. Lots going on, like I said. My face still hurts. (laughs) All right, I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you. Your financial support is vital in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and continue to help people grow in their discernment and in their biblical understanding and compare what people are saying to the Word of God. You can support us a few ways. One is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. And by doing so, you can actually... Uh, send your gift in via secure credit card to online processing, um, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Warning, this is our segment where we're going to get to the politically incorrect question. Uh, that politically incorrect question is, uh, what kind of church would make an unrepentant abortionist feel comfortable in his sins. But before we get to that, I thought we'd pass this along. This is from the Washington Times. This is an Associated Press story. Dateline, uh, Fresno, California. National leaders of the Episcopal Church have ousted 61 clergy who aligned with a former bishop in California when he broke with the National Church in a dispute over the Bible and homosexuality. Former Bishop John David Schofield led led the Diocese of San Joaquin to become the first full diocese to secede from the U.S. denomination in 2007. Four years earlier, Episcopalians consecrated their first openly gay bishop, setting off a wide-ranging debate within the church and upsetting conservative congregations. Schofield ultimately was removed as head of the diocese and barred from performing any religious rites. He maintains he is an Anglican bishop under the worldwide church. Episcopal leaders said Wednesday they were deposing all clergy who severed their ties and joined Schofield in affiliating with an Anglican archdiocese in Argentina. Jerry Lamb, the new Episcopal bishop of San Joaquin, called the decision to oust the clergy heartbreaking. Uh, But the fact is they chose to abandon their relationship with the Episcopal Church, he said. Actually, um, Mr. Bishop Dude, um, what's this guy's name? Bishop Lamb, Jerry Lamb. It's not that they um, had uh, to abandon their relationship with the Episcopal Church. It's that the Episcopal Church decided to abandon their relationship with God and their subjugation to his word in the scripture. So these men remained faithful to the Lord while the greater Episcopal Church didn't. Schofield said in a statement Wednesday that the Anglican leaders across the globe recognized the deposed clergy as priests and deacons in good standing. Clearly, the traditional understanding of what it means to be a member of this historic communion has been tragically altered by this action. He said the Episcopal Church needlessly isolates itself from their brothers and sisters around the world. Well, why do they do that? Because they want to openly ordain unrepentant homosexuals. In December, the breakaway diocese joined with three other 
others and dozens of individual parishes in the U.S. and Canada to announce that they were forming the North American Anglican province to rival the Episcopal Church, Schofield said Wednesday, that 23 dioceses now plan to affiliate with the new province. In other words, Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey, that liberal, Episcopal, pro-homosexual leader of the Episcopalian Church, is finding her kingdom being taken away from her. She's being stripped and watching her little earthly kingdom being whittled away by the people who are still faithful to the scriptures and not blindly following leaders who are wandering away from God's word. And I'd say it's about time. I tell you, for years, decades now, I've been wondering, when are people going to stand up to these liberals who are defecting from the word of God and call a spade a spade and to take away their power. It needs to be done. Well, if you want to remember what Catherine Jefford Shorey says about homosexuality, I happen to have a little clip here. I'd love to play that for you. Religion says homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of God. Can those two perceptions ever be reconciled? How do we come to a conclusion that it's a sin in the eyes of God? From the Bible, well, you're the what what texts do we read that? But, uh, you know, Leviticus, you know, things like that. Seriously, well, you know, First Corinthians. That it is. Well, I would have them go back to the very sources they find so black and white about that, and ask, what's the context of this passage? What was it written to address? Um, what was going on underneath it that this appears to speak to? And I think we find when we do some very serious scholarship that in almost every case it's speaking about a cultural context that looks nothing like wrong. By the way, that's you can that's always how liberal oh this is addressing a cultural context. No, it wasn't. It was dealing with the actual act of homosexuality. The one in which we're wrestling with homosexuality today. So how do you read uh, Jonathan and David that story? I think it's got some uh, challenging things to say to us who have said for hundreds of years, thousands of years, that it's inappropriate for two men to love each other in that way. Is this a moral issue to you? It's a moral issue in the sense that part of the job of the church is to help all Christians grow up into the full stature of Christ. It's to help all of us. Yeah, and and how is that supposed to happen when people are remaining unrepentant in their sins? To lead holy lives. The question is, what does that holy life look like? Well, many conservative, traditional Christians say that the homosexual life is not a holy life. They would yes, because God's Word says that. Say that it's only holy if it's celibate. No, it's not, it's not even holy if it's celibate. And I think we've got more examples, out of Scripture even, to offer in challenge to that. <sighs> so there you go. That's just a taste of what's going on. And now for the politically incorrect segment that I've warned you about from the beginning, at the top of the program, if you would. Uh, if you if you want to uh, engage in non rockabotus that's a, uh, a terminal disease that uh, Dr. Walter Martin described, and you just want to get along with everybody and you don't want to ask tough questions, then this is not the segment for you. In this fact, this is probably not even the program for you. 
But that said, I'm going to read uh, an AP uh, headline uh, over the weekend that I saw. It says this, abortion doctor George Tiller gunned down at church. Just the headline alone should be having you go, what? What? And what? Okay. This is wrong on so many levels, it's not even funny. The attorney for George Tiller says that the late-term abortion provider was shot and killed at his church in Wichita, Kansas. Attorney Dan Manat said Tiller was shot as he served as an usher during Sunday morning services at Reformation Lutheran Church. Monat said Tiller's wife, Jean, was in the choir at the time of the shooting. The clinic, run by the 67-year-old uh, doctor, has repeatedly been the site of protest for about two decades. A protester shot Tiller in both arms in 1993, and his clinic was bombed in 1995. Captain Brent Allred said police were looking for a gunman who fled in a 1993 light blue Ford Taurus registered in Merriman. No other details about the shooting were immediately rele- released. Okay. That was the story that I saw over the weekend. <clears throat> Already Albert Muller of the of the Baptist Church has re, uh, responded, and he's got a good take. He says, A wicked deed in Wichita attests for pro-life movement. Uh, the cold-blooded murder of Dr. George Tiller on Sunday morning uh, presents the pro-life movement in America with a crucial moral test. Will we condemn this murder in unqualified terms? The answer is yes. Okay, you do not, you do not murder murderers. Murdering murderers is not how you take care of the problem. We are a nation of laws. We do not take the law into our own hands and murder somebody else. You, you don't you can't say that you're pro-life and then turn around and murder somebody. For many years Dr. George Tiller has represented the horrific reality of the abortion industry in this nation, infamously known as the pro in the pro-life movement in America. Tiller was known as Tiller the Killer because of his well-known willingness to perform late-term abortions almost no other doctor in the nation would perform. Because of Dr. George Tiller, Wichita became the destination of choice for women seeking abortions in the late third trimester. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. In 1993, Tiller was shot in both arms by an assailant. His clinic was regularly protested, and he was once bombed. Tiller had many brushes with the law, and just weeks ago, he was acquitted of charges that he had colluded with another physician to illegally justify late-term abortions. George Tiller was shot to death Sunday morning as he was serving as an usher at Reformation Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas. Witnesses said that the lone assailant entered the church, shot Dr. Tiller with a single shot, threatened two others, and then fled the scene. A uh, suspect was arrested hours later. Wichita police said that the unnamed suspect would likely face multiple charges. Violence in response to the horror of abortion is rare, but not new. According to some news reports, Dr. Tiller was the fifth physician to be murdered by abortion opponents. In other cases, abortion clinics have been bombed and workers have been hurt or killed. Proponents of abortion rights often charge that the rhetoric of the pro-life movement leads to violence. After all, we describe abortion as murder and point to the business of abortion as the murder of the unborn. We make clear that abortion is the taking of innocent human life and that what goes on in abortion clinics is the business of death. We make these arguments because we know that they are true. Abortion is murder. Uh, what goes on in those clinics is institutionalized homicide. 
often for financial profit. Abortion is a moral scandal and a national tragedy and a blight on the American conscience. But violence in the name of protesting abortion is immoral, unjustified, and horribly harmful to the pro-life cause. Now, the premeditated murder of Dr. George Tiller is in the foyer of his church in the headline in the headline scandal, not the abortions he performed in the cause that he represented. We have no right to take the law into our own hands or to act in an act of criminal violence. We are not given the, uh, the right to take this power into our own hands, for God has granted his power to governing authorities. The horror of abortion cannot be rightly confronted, much less corrected, by means of violence and acts outside of the law and lawful means of remedy. This is not merely a legal technicality. It is a vital test of the morality of the pro-life movement. The Christian church has been forced by historical necessity to think through these issues again and again. The church has reached a basic moral consensus on issues of violence and governmental obedience, and this consensus requires that Christian citizens work with legal, judicial, and political means to persuade governing authorities concerning what is good, right, and just, and honoring to God. Those who operate outside of this consensus and perform acts of violence are rightly understood to abrogate authority to themselves in a way that violates not only the laws of men, but the law of God. Civil civil disobedience may be justified so long as the Christian is willing to suffer at the hands of the governing authorities, but is not justified if the citizen employs violence against the state or against other citizens. So I think you got the gist of it. Um, by the way, you can read Moeller's piece at uh, thechristianpost.com. And I agree with him. You know, it's absolutely uh, it's wrong on so many levels. You do not murder a murderer. Um, you do not take the law into your own hands. You don't fight this this way. The weapons that we've been given to fight with are God's word. And we have the gospel. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which God says is what he uses to quicken people, to give them faith, to bring them to repentance and to trust in Christ. The big tragedy here, if you ask me, is that Tiller, the killer, an unrepentant murderer, went into eternity in his unrepentant state. And he's saying, well, he was gunned down in church. How do you know he was unrepentant? Which leads to the next issue. The really politically correct, incorrect one. Are you ready? He was gunned down at Reformation Lutheran Church, which, by the way, is a member of the ELCA, which, for the most part, the ELCA is like the Episcopalian Church. It's overrun with liberals, people who have abandoned their job to preach Christ and him crucified for sins. They deny the word of God. They do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not preach the law lawfully. And, and as a result of it, um, you know, they, they're off into la-la land. Now, there's a lot of ELCA pastors who are confessional Lutherans who, who unfortunately, are you know, they're outvoted in the, in the ELCA. My hope is that they would do the same thing as the Episcopal Church and, and leave the ELCA, or start their own confessional synod, but that's a different story. So the church where Tiller the Killer was uh, attending church was Reformation Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas. Visited their website. They have a male pastor and a female pastor, and this is from their page about what their mission is. 
servants of God guided by the Holy Spirit to make Christ known. You know what's really funny? Is that this mission statement sounds exactly like the exact same kind of mission statements that we're getting from seeker-driven churches. We're servants of God guided by the Holy Spirit to make Christ known. This is our mission statement, a sort of synopsis or guiding sentence for what we hope to be about. Living as God's people in the world. Servants of God. As we move through life, we want to serve God no matter what we... What we are up to in our daily lives, taking classes at the local at the local university, selling shoes at the mall, volunteering at the hospital, designing airplanes, making a home, or cleaning someone's teeth, or how about aborting and murdering children? We want our lives to matter. But how do we serve God? By loving God with all, uh, with all that we are and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We partner with God and care for people and the world. Hospitality, humility, compassion, these are some of the words that guide our serving. <clears throat> so basically, what are they about? They're, it's the same stuff. Loving God and loving neighbor. But apparently, loving neighbor never got to the point of l- confronting George Tiller with his sin and calling him to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Instead, uh, Reformation Lutheran Church is a liberal church that has wandered off into the liberal social gospel and made an unrepentant abortionist comfortable in his sin. What should have happened to George Tiller is that his pastors should have disciplined him and called him to repentance, uh, barred him from coming to communion, and refused to forgive his sins. Refused to give him absolution until he repented of his murder. And he didn't. They didn't do that. Instead, he was an usher and his wife sang in the choir. There is something seriously wrong with this. Seriously wrong with this. And I'm going to point something out to you. Again, this is politically incorrect, but I'm going to stick to my guns on this. It is absolutely an abomination that a man like George Tiller could Sunday after Sunday after Sunday attend a Christian church and not be confronted with his sin and called to repentance. In fact, he might even be alive today had that happened. But we listen to this. This is from Ezekiel. Uh, book of Ezekiel. Uh, what, what chapter am I in? Three. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. That's right. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. God speaking. There's a principle here. If you don't warn the wicked person of his wicked ways and God sends him into eternity and dies because of his wickedness, God's going to require his blood from your hands. What's funny is that the Apostle Paul picks up on this exact same language when he's speaking to, when he's giving his farewell address 
to the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20. Let me read to you what Paul writes and listen carefully to his words at this point. And I'll even show you a cross reference starting at verse 17. Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 17, Paul writes, or Luke writes, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when he came to him, he said to them, Quote, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious of my, of its to itself, if only I may finish my course and ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Listen to that. Acts chapter 26 and 27. The Apostle Paul a man who understands justification by grace. He outlines again and reminds the church of Ephesus that he was there preaching repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And upon leaving them, he says, because I told you the whole counsel of the word of God, I am innocent of all of your blood. Picking up on the theme that we see brought out in Ezekiel chapter 3. This isn't the only place where Paul speaks this way. He actually speaks about the, speaks this way negatively uh, uh, to a different church, Acts chapter 18, verse 6. Um, let me read this, um, starting in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, uh, that, Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, and from now on I will go to the Gentiles. So we have a positive and a negative in Scripture here in the book of Acts, a New Testament concept. Okay, Paul, because he preached the whole counsel of the Word of God to the Ephesians and they trusted in Christ and repented, he says, I'm innocent of your blood. And to those in Macedonia, Okay, the Jews who rejected Paul's message, he says, I'm, your blood be on your own head, I'm innocent. In both cases, he preached the full counsel of the word of God. And to which I say, there's a problem here with Reformation Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas. I think there's a good chance they are guilty of George Tiller's blood because they did not preach the full counsel of the word of God, and instead they created a church environment where an unrepentant murderer would feel comfortable in his sins and not need to repent and not understand his need for a savior for his wretchedness and for his murders. Good chance that George Tiller's blood is on their hands their hands. I bring that up 
and I would love to get your feedback. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com on that if you'd like to. We're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 15, and then we're going to get into our review today. Uh, Not a sermon, but a a, a speech, if you would, on uh, YouTube from Monica Dennington regarding her call for all Calvinists to repent. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. My name there is Chris Roseborough. Or if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just don't do it during church. That's right. I will not be Twittering during church and neither should you. <laughs> my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, Chris Roseborough. We are ready to embark on hour number two. Just doing a little bit of post-hour one little reflection there. You know, I tell you, the church hasn't been given this ginormous assignment. It's been given a pretty simple task. The task is to go and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. To go and announce the good news. Christ crucified for our sins. This is not difficult, but this is the very message that Satan doesn't want to get out. And people who are liberals, who are who are basically in the church and are yet scandalized by this message to the point where they don't want to preach that, they don't want to do the uncomfortable thing of preaching the truth, these are people who are not helping anybody, and I hate to say it, but the scripture is clear, the blood of those who go into eternity in their wickedness is going to be on their hands. You want to be a pastor? 
Think twice about it for a second. If you are not prepared to do the thorny job of preaching repentance of sins and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, calling a spade a spade and using the law to condemn sinners, to, including yourself, and then bringing them the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, as the only solution to their sinful problem, don't go into the ministry. And don't be attending a church or turning a blind eye or, or somehow making allowances for people in ministry, Christian ministry, who aren't bringing this message. Because then what happens is you get these bizarre, out of, just outrageous problems like this. Like the George Tiller problem. George Tiller serving as an usher in a church, in a Christian church nonetheless, and remaining unrepentant in his day-to-day vocation of murdering his neighbor. And don't think for a second that God won't hold his pastors, or pastor and pastrix, accountable for his blood. This is a total tragedy. And anyone listening from Reformation Lutheran Church, if you happen to be tuning in for whatever reason, um, don't condone what your pastors have done and say, oh, they just love God and this is just a terrible act. They're just victimized. No. Your pastor had the job of preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and it's obvious that he fell down on that job. Christ wasn't preached in such a way, the law wasn't preached in such a way that George Tiller was confronted with his sin and brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ. Because even Jesus Christ, Christ's death on the cross paid for even the murders that George Tiller committed. And the tragedy is is that he was attending a church Sunday after Sunday and, quote, hearing the word of God, and yet was not confronted with his sin, did not repent, and did not truly receive the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ for his heinous, heinous sins. Just absolute tragedy. All right, moving along there. I I know I'm going to get email on this one. Oh, Chris, you're being too hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell that to George Tiller now. He goes into eternity as an unrepentant abortionist while attending a church? What consolation does he get at this point? Just, It's just terrible. All right, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and we are to, we just got done finishing the part in the book of Exodus where God miraculously and amazingly performs this outrageous miracle and, quote, baptizes Israel in the process in the Red Sea by making the, the sea part and then walking through on dry ground. Amazing miracle. And then Pharaoh and his chariots and his army who were chasing after Israel. Uh, they they end up uh, at the bottom of the Red Sea as fish food. And then you have this amazing song 
that the Moses and the people of Israel sang upon their deliverance. And listen to this hymn of deliverance from the enemies. Exodus chapter 15, starting at verse 1. The Lord, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and he has chosen, and his chosen officers were sunk in the sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which, you, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. Uh, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea." Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. When they had come to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute. And a rule, and there he tested them, saying, "If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer." 
And then they came to Elam, where they where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And that's our reading from Exodus. Again, all of the, the purpose of this stuff, the purpose of reading these stories is to familiarize yourself with them so that you can teach others. All right. Now, we're coming to that part of our program where we normally would do a sermon review. But since this is not a sermon, it's not really a sermon review. And um, just by way of a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of backup story here. Uh, one of my friends on Facebook, uh, he, <clears throat> he says, his name is Daniel. He says, hey, Chris, I know you're not that big on Calvinists, but I wanted to know, have you heard of Monica Dennington? She, she likes to say that we are absolute heretics and stuff. If you want to check her out, I can give you a link. Actually, I don't want to check her out. I'm married, but that's a different story. He says, or if you want to know about her already, then what do you think? So he sends me the link. To this YouTube video, and now, I, funny enough, I I really didn't know Monica's name by name. Although, if someone had said that TikTok Ministries, I would have known exactly who they were talking about because I've been receiving emails on YouTube from Monica and TikTok Ministry for quite some time. She's actually a, a very aggressive self marketer on YouTube, and uh, she's built quite a little bit of a following for herself. Now. Daniel, I want to say this. Uh, it's not true that I'm not big on Calvinists. I'm big on Calvinists. And and I mean that in just the lovingest way possible. Like I've said before, I'll say it again. I would be in a foxhole in a firefight. If I had to pick anybody to be with, a Calvinist would be there with me. Okay? Um, I consider Calvinists and Lutherans to be on the same side of the Reformation. And they are on the same side of the spectrum theologically. Um, there's some significant differences, okay, and th- this has to do with the center of Calvinist theology and their understanding of how to use reason, you know, which I think is not really in accord with the truth, but that's a different story. That doesn't make them heretics. It doesn't make them outside of the kingdom of God at all. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, funny enough, are Catholics and Wesleyans. Now, I'll have to share save that for another program, but the basic idea there is is that both Catholicism and Wesleyanism doesn't distinguish between law and gospel properly. As a result of it, they mix works into salvation. And when you do that, you lose the gospel altogether. But that's a whole other program, probably for another time. All right, now without any further ado, I'm going to dive into Monica Dennington's uh, call to repentance for Calvinists. Now what I want you to listen for in this review, since this isn't a sermon, this is a woman preaching from the Bible, she does a few things that you've got to pay attention to. Number one, her big problem in this is that she reads from Scripture and basically in such a way that she's bringing a charge against Calvinists, but she doesn't provide any evidence to support her claim that Calvinists are guilty of making of of basically of the charge that she's bringing. Okay, she ba- her argument is based purely upon her definition of Calvinism, which is skewed at best, and basically saying by definition Calvinists are guilty of breaking God's laws, breaking God's word, and of exalting themselves above Christ. The problem is you can't do things like that. The other thing you need to pay attention to is what she does is she strings together 
uh, Bible verses that are out of context in order to quote, you know, to just kind of drive the stake into the heart of Calvinist even deeper. Again, the problem is, is that she makes a charge, but she doesn't bring any evidence. And, the, and her charge is based upon how she defines Calvinists. And not, you know, well, l- l- let's get into it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Here we go. This is a psychedelic message from God's Word from Monica Dennington. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from factional motives, through contentiousness, strife, selfishness, or for unworthy ends, or prompted by conceit and empty arrogance. Instead, in the true spirit of humility, lowliness of mind, let each regard the others as better than and superior to himself. Oh, by the way, which kind of leads to the third thing to kind of watch for, is notice the hypocrisy, Okay. What's interesting is is that she makes these unfounded – basically, she brings charges without any evidence to substantiate the charges. She quotes scripture out of context you know, to support this plunging of the knife. And then if you – she'll ar- argue that if you argue against her, you're being argumentative. Yet she's the one who's being contentious. She's the one who's bringing – I mean the irony here is just you can cut it with a knife. Thinking more highly of one another than you do of yourselves. Hello, everyone. I'm Monica Dennington, and today we are going to answer the question once and for all from God's Word. Does God want you to be a Calvinist? And we're going to do that by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start by reading verses 10 through 13, and then we're going to skip to uh, chapter 3. And it says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Brothers, I could not. Okay, she just switched, by the way, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to have to do a little tidying up work. I want her to read this and then we'll go into the scriptures themselves to kind of clean things up here. Not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? So there you you have it, brothers. That is God's final word on the subject. Okay. <laughs> there you have it. That's God's final word. You see, uh, Calvinism uses the word Calvin. Therefore, they're guilty of exalting Calvin above Christ. And Monica has said so, and that's all there is to it. You're guilty, and you're wrong, and you got to repent. Well, hold on a second there, Monica. Let's get into God's word. Let's go back into those passages that you quoted and take a look at the three most important rules in sound biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
and take a look at how Monica is handling these passages. She quoted verses 10 through 13 in the, uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read this in context. <clears throat> Paul writing to the Corinthian church. A church, let's just say, that had some challenges morally going on there. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, be, you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, important thing to keep in mind, Christian unity is based upon unity of doctrine. Unity of what the scriptures say. We're to be of the same mind. Paul in other places in the scripture points out that we are to rebuke and correct false doctrine and those who are teaching it. Okay, keep that in mind. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now notice Paul here also is pointing out that Chloe at the Corinthian church is the one who brought up the fact, who mentioned the fact that there was quarreling among them. And so Paul doesn't keep her anonymity. Paul says, hey, it was Chloe that said this. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. <clears throat> Keep something in mind. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and Apollos all taught the same Christian faith. They all taught salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. They all taught the same Christian gospel. So there wasn't a division in their teaching. Instead, the division was on the part of the listeners. Okay, well, I, I was brought to faith by Paul. I was brought to faith by Peter. So I follow him. I follow... Yet... Paul, Apollos, and Peter all taught the same doctrine. They were united in the Christian faith and in the doctrine that they taught. Okay? In fact, Apollos, um, he himself had it. He, he had, let me see if I can find this real quick here. He himself had to be corrected in his teaching. Hold on. I'm going to pull this up in my computerized Bible. Oh, it's Apollos, A-P-O-L-L-O-S. Here we go. Um, there we go. Let's see. Acts, and there, there he found some disciples. Here we go. Here we go. Acts chapter 18. Let me read this about Apollos, okay? Apollos, this was an apologist, a Christian apologist and, and defender of the faith who, uh, I mean, he was just, I mean, even before he was completely catechized, he was out there defending Christ. It's just amazing uh, what this man did. And so let me, uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Hang on a second here and pull this up. Acts 18. Uh, I want to get this in context. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 18. It says this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, who was a native of Alexandria, that's an, in Egypt, <clears throat> came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and had been fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. That was John the Baptist. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had, who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by scriptures that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. Okay. So we know something about Apollos here and that is, is that he powerfully refuted the Jews. At one point he didn't quite understand properly the doctrine of baptism. Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and explained to him things more accurately. And what did he do? He, he cleaned up his, uh, his doctrine and but what was he solid on? Christ and him crucified for our sins and the grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing from the scriptures that uh, Christ uh, that the Christ was Jesus. Now, this is all important because here Paul is pointing this out, is that there were some in Corinth who were saying that they followed Paul or that they followed Apollos or that some of them followed Peter. All three of these men taught the same doctrine. It's critical for properly understanding this and if you were to you know by extension applying it today i thank god that i baptized none of you paul says except for crispus and gaius so that uh, no one may say that you were baptized into my name i i did baptize also the household of stephanus and beside that i i don't know whether i baptized anyone else for christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of christ be emptied of its power Okay, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to thus who those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." So Paul, Peter, and Apollos all taught the same gospel. Now we fast forward to First Corinthians chapter three, which Monica also quoted. She says, uh, not, "Not she, but Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ." I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready for it. You are still in the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Notice here, okay, again, come back. Paul, Peter, and Apollos all taught the same gospel. And the factions at this point were not based upon different doctrines, but rather them, in a way, just from a personality point of view, saying, hey, you know, you know I, I came to faith through this guy, and so I follow him. But what does, Paul, what does Paul do at this point? Does he say, repent, you're not giving Christ the glory, you need to, this is idolatry, you need to stop, if you don't, you're raw. No, watch what Paul does. Okay. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? There's their servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one 
uh, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test uh, what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through a fire. Now, this is important, okay? Paul sit there and say, you are, this is terrible, you've got to repent. Well, he does say that they're worldly. He does say that they're acting in a human way, that they're being of the flesh. But Paul brings them back and says, listen, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm just a servant. Paul is, he's just a servant. Who's Peter? He's just a servant. We're just, you know, it's God who does the work. Okay? So he directs them back in a way that, again, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In this particular case, Paul is kindly and gently moving them back and pointing and saying, listen, I'm nothing. Now, was there any doctrinal difference between the preaching of Apollos, Peter, and Paul at this point? Answer, none. None whatsoever. Now, why is this important? Because when we come to the question of Calvinism, understand something. Calvinism, for the most part, now I understand there's not direct unity in the whole thing, but Calvinism is is a way of understanding scriptures. That it's a, it's a complete system for understanding the scriptures. Now, it does not worship Calvin. I do not know, and I know lots of Calvinists, and I none of them. These are leading Calvinists. None of them worship Calvin. None of them exalt Calvin above the scriptures. None of them say, I follow Calvin. No, all of them would say they follow Christ. And that Calvin's contribution in church history as a theologian was one of being a theologian of the cross in the sense that he points them back to Christ. Again, what are the five solas of the Reformation? Sola gratis, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Sola Christus, by Christ's work alone. And sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Calvinists are indebted to Calvin insofar as Calvin points them back to Christ. Now, as a Lutheran, there are things that I disagree with Calvinism, especially in its hermeneutic and its in its use of reason. I don't think that there's some correct biblical interpretation that comes about as the result of the center of their theology and how they use reason. However, I consider that to be an in-house disagreement between brothers, not as, as me saying I need to anathematize Calvinists. Now, that being the case, we've taken a look at Monica's scripture here, okay, and this is really important. Look at the differences to way how Paul handles this this problem as opposed to the way Monica is handling the problem. Monica, at this point, she's going to come back to full blast. She's got the bazooka out and she's making the charge against Calvinism, basically saying, see, scripture says it's that simple. You can't, you know, you can't have these factions based upon men. Keep in mind, Apollos, Peter, and Paul taught the same doctrine. Calvin comes about during the time of the Reformation and his Doctrine is in direct contrast specifically to the works-righteousness system of medieval Catholicism. Right? Do Catholics and Calvin teach the same doctrine? No, they don't. Do Calvinists and those 
who are Pelagian teach the same doctrine? No, they don't. Unfortunately, we live in a time when these distinctions have meaning, and they have meaning in the sense uh, that, you know, because there's different competing doctrines and different competing questions as to how men are saved and the proper use of the means of grace and whether or not man contributes to his salvation through their good works or not. This is critical. Okay? Back in the time of Paul and Peter and Apollos, there were no factions like this, and there was no faction between Paul and Peter and, and uh, Apollos. There wasn't. But nowadays, there's a huge difference between what Rick Warren teaches, between what Calvin Calvinist teaching is, and what uh, Roman Catholicism is. All of these systems have different ways of answering the question, what did Christ do for us on the cross? How, and how men are saved. Those are the key ingredients for this. And that being the case, now understand, I'm not a Calvinist. I think Calvinists get it right according to God's word. Catholics don't. But we continue with Monica Dennington. Here we go. Such an open and closed case, but it is. Because the word of God says that if you say, I follow this teacher or that teacher, instead of just saying that you follow Jesus Christ, if you exalt one leader or one theologian or one teacher over another, this scripture is very clear that you are both divisive and disobedient and you must repent. No, Monica, actually you're wrong. That's not what the passages that you quoted say. They did not say that somebody who says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or Cephas are being divisive and they have to repent. Paul's correction at this point was to bring them back and show them Christ and show them that Paul and Apollos and Cephas were just servants. You've actually drawn an incorrect conclusion from the passages you quoted. And that is all there is to it. I know it is unfathomable for many of you to think that it could be that simple because you are used to arguing about everything. But the Bible tells us about people who argue about everything, people who are... Okay, she's quoting uh, Titus 3.10. She says, the Bible warns us about people who uh, argue about everything. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with him. Now, Monica, here's the irony here. You're, being, you're actually being the one who's being divisive. Why? Because you're bringing a charge without any evidence that Calvinists are guilty of of committing the charge that you've brought up. Okay. You are being argumentative and you're not allowing for people, Calvinists to give a reasoned defense to the baseless charges that you're bringing at this point. You're basically accusing Calvinism based upon the definition of Calvinism. Yet you're the one being divisive and argumentative and somebody who would defend themselves against your charge. And now I understand I'm not a Calvinist. Someone who would defend themselves against your charge is not being argumentative nor divisive, but instead they are rightly defending themselves against a false charge or a, a charge that has no basis in reality contentious it calls them divisive and it says that we are to have nothing to do with them in the body of christ you have chosen to brazenly disrespect our king jesus christ no they haven't 
In fact, Calvinists are strong into giving Jesus Christ glory and obeying him. Do you, do you not know the history of Calvinism at all? How can you make these charges without understanding the thing for which you are basically condemning? By refusing to bow to his holy written word. For some reason, you, because maybe because you went to seminary and you were surrounded by people who seem to think it's okay, maybe it's because you were raised in a denomination where everybody just accepted that some people are Calvinists and some people are Arminius and some people are this or that or the other. Whatever the reason is, you cannot escape the fact that this passage of Scripture makes it clear that you are disobedient because you're doing the same thing when you say I'm a Calvinist that they were doing when they say I follow Apollos. I no, they're not doing the same thing, Monica. And those who are following you and listening to you, are they then Dennington Knights? I follow Paul. Or Is this Denningtonism? I follow Cephas. Paul's reaction to that, because Paul was a righteous servant of God, Paul's reaction to that was, did Paul die for you? And that is what God is saying to you today. My brothers, my sisters, who call yourselves Calvinists. Did Calvin die for you? Who is John Calvin? Is he Jesus Christ? Has God a... Uh, Monica, again, my question is, uh, what Calvinist are you quoting here? Which Calvinist can you point to that says that Calvin died for their sins? Again, you, you don't understand what Calvinism is. It's a theology that points to Christ and teaches salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Pointed Calvin to be your teacher? Well, let's find out what the Bible says. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called a teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. You see, well, Monica, you're teaching us. Do, do, do you see any hypocrisy or irony in this at all, Monica? You guys, it's when we think that we're smarter than God that we get into trouble. And who, by being a Calvinist, thinks that they're smarter than God? Do you not understand what Calvinism's main doctrinal tenet is? It's the sovereignty of God. If you understood what Calvinism is and what it taught, you wouldn't be making these really ignorant and unfounded statements about Calvinism. Which Calvinists are you reading, girl? It's when we think that we are going to be the exception to the word of God that somehow, yeah, I know that God said that, that, you know, we're not supposed to say I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, but certainly Calvinism is different. Calvinism is okay because, you know, it, it's, it's a great uh, ideology and it's really just the gospel, you know, but we just call it Calvinism. Uh, by the way, this is what we call building a straw man argument. She's not actually arguing against a real Calvinist or real Calvinistic arguments. She's built a straw man, stuffed shirt, and she's drawn in big white letters on the front of it, Calvinist. And now what she's doing is she's having an argument with the straw man with the word Calvinist that she's created, and she's beating the living tar out of the straw man, but she's not really arguing with a Calvinist and what Calvinists really teach. <sighs> 
Okay, now we're really getting into dangerous territory because you know what you just did? When you say, well, this is just our way of expressing that we're talking about the true gospel. What you just did is you gave the glory, God's glory, that he should get for his holy perfect word and his holy gospel. You took that glory and you attributed it to John Calvin. How dare you? Okay, um, Monica, evil Knievel could not jump that chasm in logic. I kid you not. Evil Knievel is about to jump this huge chasm of logic created by Monica Dennington. Will he make it across? He's up to 120. He's at 140. 145. He's on the right. Nope. Evil Knievel couldn't even jump that chasm in logic. Uh, Monica, can you quote a Calvinist for us? Who's doing these things? And if you were taking up upon your lips the words of somebody besides God, then you have to understand that that man is your teacher. If this- uh, you Like the way this woman is being our teacher? Monica, if you – there's a problem with your hermeneutic here. If your interpretation of that passage were correct – then you shouldn't even be teaching us. Nobody should. The only thing Christians should do when they show up to church is sit down and open their Bibles and read. No man should teach us. No human being. So maybe just, maybe you're not interpreting the passage right. But then again, Monica, keep this in mind. Um, You're not a pastor... And you never will be qualified to be one. So why are you teaching the church? Just a question. I mean, you are familiar with the prohibitions of a woman being an authority over a man. This is your teacher. Then this is what you will be quoting. If great theologians, or what you call a great theologian is your teacher, then you will quote the great theologian. You see, the... Uh, Monica, again, I don't know a single Calvinist who, when they ascend into the pulpit, they say, open up now to Institutes, Volume 12, Section 32, Verse 3. No. Again, the value of Calvinism is its ability to drive us into the scriptures and show us Christ from all of the scriptures. <sighs> Bible says that whatever you have stored up in your heart, that's your treasure, okay? You store up treasures in your heart, and out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So listen to your own sermons, pastors. Uh, Monica, how many Calvinist sermons have you listened to? How many are you, I mean, listen, here at Fighting for the Faith, we do a ton of sermon reviews. And the reason why we review the sermons in context is so that we don't end up bringing false charges against somebody. You see what I'm saying? So here you are, you're making the claim that these Calvinists, you know, somehow they need to listen to their sermons and what they're preaching about. Monica, do you even know what you're talking about? When was the last time you reviewed a Calvinist sermon? 
Listen to your own arguments. All of you young men who consider yourselves to be great apologists or you want to be, listen to your own arguments and ask yourself, how much of my time do I spend quoting the actual written word of God? And how much of my time do I spend quoting great theologians and great theological minds and men that I idolize, men that I look up to, that I... You know, Monica, are, are, do any of the people who follow you and have subscribed to your channel there at YouTube, do you think they're idolizing you? I mean, they're listening to you, right? Monica said, and Monica said, and Monica said, and they might even quote Monica. Again, can you give me an example of a Calvinist who's idolized Calvin? I'm sure that a few Calvinists along the way have done that, but can you show me where in the mainstream of Calvinism... Calvinists who are worshiping and idolizing Calvin. You are aware that really the, the, the worth of any good theologian, and I quote them from time to time, is their ability to point us to Christ in a text to really help us better understand what the scriptures teach. Those are the theologians I really, really benefit from. Huh. I think should be respected because what you do when you speak men's words more often than you speak what is actually written in the word of God is you show what you really treasure in your heart. It's not the word of God. Uh, Monica, can you give us an example of a Calvinist that is guilty of the charge that you're bringing? It's men. It's called idolatry, you guys. Idolatry is something that goes all the way back to the fall. And it is something that we all have to fight. It takes many different forms, but one of the most common forms that it takes is that we lift up human beings. The Bible says, cursed is the one who puts their trust in man. And yet what do we do over and over again? We put our trust in a man and a teacher we can trust. That I is not God's will. I have no clue which Calvinist you're talking about, Monica. And I'm not a Calvinist. I don't know any Calvinists who put their trust in him. Calvinists are driven to putting their trust in Christ. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. You familiar with any of these great solas of the Reformation that Calvinists subscribe to and promote? He wants to know you personally. He wants to call you by his name. And what makes you think a Calvinist doesn't know Christ personally and that Christ wouldn't call him by name? You throw all these charges around, yet you don't substantiate them. Come on, Monica. That's what his word says. But you refuse to believe him and you refuse to take that thing that has exalted itself in your mind and your theology that says, eh, you know what? Um, I don't actually have to obey first Corinthians because it's, you know, it's talking about those other people. It's not talking about me. Uh, we've been through this passage already, Monica. You twisted it. And you've allowed that thing, that tradition which nullifies God's word, you've allowed it to exalt itself. Really, can you show us how Calvinism nullifies God's word? Against the knowledge of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells you what you are supposed to do. Okay, here we go. Listen carefully. She's going to quote 2 Corinthians 10.5. That thing that has exalted itself. It says we demolish arguments. Arguments. Yeah, um, Monica, um, 2 Corinthians 10.5 
Second <sighs> Corinthians chapter 10. Remember our uh, three rules of sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with, with co- such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. <clears throat> For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, Monica, just a, uh, can you ex- give me an example of where Calvinism exalts itself against the knowledge of God and is a lofty p- opinion really raised against that? Again, Calvinism teaches sola scriptura, scripture alone. Do you like to argue? Hey, you, Mr. Calvinist, do you like to argue? Do you know the Bible tells you that you are not supposed to argue in the body of Christ? That's forbidden. That's not allowed. You're in disobedience. And what you're supposed to do is demolish arguments. Notice that she's arguing. Just want to point that out. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And this is going to be hard for a lot. You know what's missing here in uh, Monica Dennington-ism? The forgiveness of sins. This is all law and no gospel. Because this is something that we call a stronghold. When you've done something for a very long time, and especially when it is entrenched in tradition, it makes it very, very hard to break away from. It's the same reason that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were able to get so far away from God's word and God's heart. It's because as human beings, we allow our traditions to nullify God's word. And can you give me an example of how Calvinism is a tradition that nullifies God's word. You do understand that you're quoting a passage where Jesus, there's a context to all this, the way Jesus used it and described it, right? There is a context to it. Jesus was talking about how the Pharisees had created a tradition that nullified God's word. And it had to do with taking care of your parents can you get Jesus actually substantiated his charge against in fact you know what we got to pull this up tradition here go looking it up in my handy dandy uh, okay let's see here tradition the commandment of god hold the tradition of men you have a fine way of rejecting the, in order to establish your tradition thus making here it is mark chapter 7 Mark chapter 7. Here we go. 
Jesus. Uh, now, the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Verse 1, by the way. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, stop for a second. Notice here. Mark, in discussing this, gives an example of a tradition that the Pharisees had. Okay? Monica, at this point, has not done us the benefit of even giving us a a single example of any of the charges. These are all just charges. But no evidence to support that the charge is true. We continue. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining uh, couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But when they eat, they eat with defiled hands. And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice what a tradition is: is when you teach a doctrine or as a command, you know, you're teaching something as the word of God that really is nothing more than the commandment of a man. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, Jesus says. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles uh, father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is now given as a gift to God then you no longer permit that person to hold the, to do for him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of god by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do so notice here in mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 we have two examples ex- examples of the Pharisees exalting their traditions above the word of God. Their teaching of tradition as the word of God when it isn't. It's just the mere commandment of men. Okay, Monica here is basically saying that Calvinists nullify the word of God by their tradition, but she hasn't yet given us any charges, anything other than charges. Not a single example. Monica, can you show us where Calvinists teach their man-made doctrines as the commands of God. That's what a tradition is. Can you show us where that is? This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you do many things like this. You allow your traditions to nullify God's word. All right? The wisdom of man. Now, how does that happen? It doesn't happen by somebody coming in and saying, hey, I'm an atheist and these are my ideas. Satan comes in subtly. You guys, he comes in to teach the body of Christ. He comes in disguised as an angel of light. That if you do not guard your mind and your mouth with the written word of God, obedience to Jesus Christ and the way he told you to do things, even in the little things, even in the things that it would seem to you wouldn't matter. Any command that Jesus gives matters, you guys. If it is given to you as an instruction in the Word... Monica, we agree. Can you show us where the Calvinists have disregarded God's Word and taught their own traditions as the Word of God when it's nothing more than a commandment of men? 
where have the Calvinists laid aside uh, the commands of God? We need examples. We need proof. There is a reason for it. And you are not going to help God or do God a favor by disobeying his word. You are not going to defend the true faith by disobeying God and calling yourself by the name of some other teacher besides Jesus Christ and by touting. So the, the, the charge at this point is that it's because they call themselves according to a teacher other than Jesus Christ. So if the if the Calvinists call, change their name to the Jesus people, Monica, again, this is simplistic and ridiculous. You don't understand what a Calvinist is. His philosophies and his teachings about the Bible and his words about God, when God said that no one's going to come to you and say, no, God, but that you will all know him and that you have one teacher. And uh, Monica, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's what you're quoting here. That's talking about after Christ's return and we know and see God face to face. That's not talking about now. He is the Christ. Why is God so adamant about this? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, he wants unity in the body. Satan knows that a house divided cannot stand. And so he comes in to try to make divisions and factions. Now, you know what? You can act like you're a mature Calvinist and that you can get along with all kinds of different people, but you just happen to be a Calvinist. The truth of the matter is that the second that you call yourself a Calvinist, you've identified that you think that you're just a cut above people who think another way. Um, no. Calvinists who identify with that way of interpreting Scripture consider themselves to be sinners in need of a savior. And as far as being a cut above, they do unapologetically believe that their that that way of interpreting scripture is correct. Just the same way you, Monica, think that your way of interpreting scripture is correct. And notice that you think you're above Calvinists because you don't call yourself a Calvinist. They're sinners in need of repentance, and you're the one scolding them for this sin. That's why you've got to set yourself apart. It's called a faction. And you haven't set yourself apart to Christ. You set yourself apart to Calvin. You set yourself apart. Can you give us an example of that, please? By saying that you have an intellectual understanding that is better than other people. No, they say that this is the correct interpretation of Scripture. And if you sit down with them with an open Bible, that's the right way to do this. And you're so convinced of it that you even argue with other members of the body of Christ to try to convert them to that way of thinking. What Monica, you're arguing with people, members of the body of Christ trying to convert them to your way of thinking. Come on! Why don't you simply read God's word to them? The reason is that you do not respect Jesus as your teacher. You're lying here. Again, can you give us an example, please? You do not think that he is the greatest teacher. You think that you need great theological minds to come along and better express what God wanted to say. 
than God could do in his written word. There is no doc. Um, Monica. <sighs> a little bit of Bible would help here. Hang on a second here. I'm looking up the word rebuke. Not because I'm going to rebuke her, because I want to point out something here. Hang on. It would help if I spelled it correctly. Rebuke. Here we go. All right. Let me. <laughs> no context. And I want to find this only in the New Testament. Here we go. Rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard it. Okay. Titus chapter 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Okay. Um, okay. Let me read Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life with God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child, a common faith, in, in a common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach to the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charges of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy or forgain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, listen to this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 tells us of the, the office of the overseer is one who's able to teach and give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Monica God has put teachers into the church, and the job of the teacher is to give instruction in sound doctrine. These are pastors and theologians and teachers, and they're called to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. There's nothing de facto wrong with having a theologian or listening to a theologian if what they're doing is instructing us in sound doctrine, which is exactly what a Calvinist would say Calvin did. ...that is even worth repeating unless the thesis, supporting statement, and conclusion of that doctrine can be found and expressed with straight scripture. Right, and Calvinism argues for their doctrines from the scripture. With no human words added and without taking the word of God out of context. And if you cannot do I agree with you, Monica. Can you show us where the Calvinists do that? Do that with your doctrines. If you cannot do that with Calvin's philosophy or anybody else's philosophy, then you are dealing with human words, words of human wisdom. And I'm going to read to you what the Bible says about that. This is for Please do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God 
that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, expressing spiritual... More scripture without a single bit of evidence that Calvinists are guilty of the charges that she's bringing. They're just guilty because she says they're guilty. And don't argue with her or you're being argumentative. And there's no place for argumentation in the church. Truths in spiritual words. You guys, you know what that means? It means that it is not good enough for you to take spiritual truths and express them in human words. You can talk about God all day long and end up so far away from God's heart that on judgment day, he will say to you, I never knew you go to hell. He said that's going to happen to a lot of people. Do you know how that happens? It tells us in first Corinthians chapter eight, it says knowledge. Knowledge is what does this knowledge puffs up. (laughs) So the reason why people go to hell is because they have knowledge. The Monica, why are you trying to give us knowledge? But love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God. Like, well, what about the woman who thinks she knows something? Like, you know that Calvinism is wrong. You know that. You, you haven't given us a single example to back up any of the charges that you've brought against Calvinists. And I'm not a Calvinist. Is known by God. What does that mean, you guys? That means you've got to ask yourself, what is it that you really want to know? What are you trying to prove? Do you want to prove to men that you know something so that you can be puffed up? Is it really? I mean, be honest with yourselves. Those of you who are Calvinists, you generally go around quoting great theologians. And the truth is, if you look in your heart, if you really take an honest look at your heart. Monica, every time I take a look at my heart, the only thing I see is sin. That's it. We're all sinners, Monica. And the great thing about Calvinism is that it points people to Christ as the solution for the sin problem that exists in all of our heart. It points people to the cross of Jesus Christ and says that we are saved by God's grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ's work alone. He did it all for us. That's what Calvinism teaches. The desire of your heart is that someday people will quote you and call you a great theologian as well. That's... (laughs) You're doing a whole lot of assuming. By the way, you know why assuming is really dangerous, right? I don't know if I could say that on the air. It's what many of you want. You know, it's called pride. You guys want to be something great. And you want to prove that you're something great by proving that your knowledge and your understanding and your insight into the Bible is just a little bit higher than somebody else's. That's- uh, Monica, so you don't think that's possible? You don't think it's possible for somebody to study and show themselves approved and for their depth of knowledge of the scriptures to be greater than somebody else's. You're quoting all of these passages of scripture as if you're a great theologian. Right? You're a cut above. Maybe you don't believe that only Calvinists go to heaven, but you certainly believe that you're a special sect. That's called factions. 
divisions. God hates those. Don't you know the Bible says God hates those who sow dissension among the brothers? And what is dissension, Monica? Dissension is any doctrine or teaching that exalts itself above Christ and the gospel. The good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. A one who stirs up dissension is one who teaches a false doctrine. So can you show us where in the scriptures Calvinists teach false doctrine? Can you give us an example of a false Calvinist doctrine? If we're going to, girl, if you want to fight in a man's game, then you need to sit down with your Bible open and bring your charges and the evidence that your charges are true. Dissension. That means you're going to start fighting over something God did not tell you to fight about. He did not tell you to fight to defend John Calvin. I don't know any Calvinists that fight to defend Calvin. In fact, I know a lot of Calvinists who's, who are very, uh, who have no problem saying that Calvin did some things wrong. Either his ideas, his philosophies, his treatises, or his honor. He did not tell you to fight for that. You do not have a right in the body of Christ to fight about that. If you do, you are a disobedient son because you are contentious. And the Bible says that if you are contentious, that you are to be warned once, you are to be warned twice, and then the body of Christ is to have nothing to do with you. And pastor, that means you. Uh, again, uh, the passage you quoted really is saying that somebody who's being heretical. Can you show us how Calvinists are heretical? That their teaching is contrary to the word of God. Professor, that means you. And that's what the scripture is saying. It says if you want to have knowledge and you think you know something, the truth is you don't know as you ought to know. You know what you ought to know? You ought to know God. And how is it the Calvinists don't know God? You ought to find out what God's heart is. And it says that he who loves God is known by God. You should have a relationship with God where you know God and God knows you. And you don't need to go through John Calvin to get that. I don't know any Calvinists who go through John Calvin. In fact, they all have relationships with Christ. Ay, ay, ay. Do you understand how arrogant it is for you to assert to people that they would have to know what Calvin thinks about God in order to know the truth? Which Calvin says, Calvinist says that? Which Calvinist says that? The truth has a name, you guys. It's a capital T. It's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And he said that we can come straight to him and he does not want us to have another mediator. And which Calvinist says that we need to pray to Calvin or can only come to Christ through Calvin? Who are you talking to, Monica? Who are these Calvinists that got you all riled up that are teaching you that you have to come to Calvin as your mediator? And how dare you go to the other members of the body of Christ and proselytize not the truth of God's word... But the ideas and philosophies of some man named John Calvin. Uh, again, who, what are you talking about? Don't you understand that God will not share his glory with another? Do you understand that Calvin didn't invent the gospel? Yeah, right, exactly. That Calvin would be the first person to say that. 
Calvin would be the first person to say he didn't invent the gospel. He's showing you from the scriptures what the gospel is. And he grew up in Catholicism, which was all works righteousness. Calvin was a staunch defender of the gospel. And that it's just as easy for a child to understand as it is for a great theologian. Actually, the truth is, it's easier for a child to understand. Because the Bible says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Jesus himself said, I thank you, God, that you have revealed these things to little children and you have hidden them from the wise and the learned. Why does he say this, you guys? Why does he do this? Why does it please him? to reveal these things to the simple-minded and to hide them from those who study these things all their life. Why? Uh, whoa, whoa, it doesn't say that, Monica. If that was the case, then none of us should be studying the Bible our entire lives. <sighs> He's saying that because a child understands the gospel. Not because learning is bad. Paul says, study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle or divide the word of truth. Again, Scripture is not against learned men studying the Scriptures at all. But if you're a learned man and you don't understand that it's about Christ and Him crucified for your sins, then your learning is of no value. Even a child understands a gift. 1 Corinthians 1.19 tells us, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Bible. Right, exactly. That's why a Calvinist would quote that passage and say, right, we believe. But Monica, you kind of missed the whole point of that passage. Let's go back. Um, let me back it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, verse 18. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What did they preach? Listen on. Okay. The folly of what we preach. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what is it that... It's Christ in him crucified that thwarts the wisdom of the wise. And funny enough, Christ in him crucified for our sins is exactly what Calvinism harps on. Well, it's very clear, brothers and sisters, that we are the bride of Christ. It is a great mystery, but it's a great hope. 
and he is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. And he tells us that just as a man is the head over his wife, over his bride, and that she is his glory, you have to understand that when he says he will not share his glory, he is saying that he will not share his wife. And that's you. Or is it? I mean, you Calvinists, you're experts on predestination and on the fact that there are some who are predestined to be destroyed. So I guess that you... Okay, finally, the first critique of Calvinism based upon a doctrine. Now, Monica, I have to agree with you here. I think Calvinists are wrong here. I do not believe that God elected people to hell. I don't think it can be supported from the scripture. Are you going to give us a biblical critique of that doctrine? Let's see. You're going to show us today whether you have been predestined for life or death by the choice that you make. Whoa. Monica, are you not aware that Scripture says you cannot choose God, that God chooses you? And I don't know if choices really fit into your theology, but it doesn't matter because God's word's not going to change for you. He said that there are those that are predestined for life. And he also said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Okay. Now she just took two passages out of context and stuck them together. This is exactly what happens if you were to take the verse that says Judas went and hung himself and then find the other verse that says, go thou and do likewise. Okay. Here's what she did wrong. Hang on a second. Let me back it up because I want you to hear this. Okay, let's see here. Or is it? I mean, you Calvinists, you're experts on predestination and on the fact that there are some who are predestined to be destroyed. So I guess that you are going to show us today whether you have been predestined for life or death by the choice that you make. And I don't know if choices really fit into your theology, but it doesn't matter because God's word's not going to change for you. He said that there... He said, okay, Romans eight twenty nine is where she starts. ...are those that are predestined for life. And he also said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua twenty four fifteen, Two verses ripped from context and stuck together. Therefore, choose this day whom you will serve... I'm sorry, Monica, that's not the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And the scripture is clear. You cannot choose God. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting at verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But who all, for all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of, the, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the decision of a man, or the will of a man, but the will of God. Born of God. We're not saved by making a choice, choose this day whom you will serve. The passage you're quoting in Joshua chapter 24 doesn't apply here. So don't get into semantics about this, you guys. You do have a choice to make today. And that choice is, are you going to bow to the word of God? Or are you going to bow to the traditions of man? Okay, Monica, at this point, here's the tragedy of all this. It's not semantics. God's word clearly says we don't choose God. 
and that faith is a gift. You've taken Joshua 24, verse 15, out of context and said that they have to make a decision. No, that's not our decision to make, and you need to look at what the Scripture says. And at this point, you're taking these warped ideas of Scripture taken out of context and making God's Word say things that it doesn't say. And to your own knowledge and what you want to do, because whoever you obey is your master and you will show who you serve by what choice you make today. Monica, you need to repent. You need to repent. Why? Because number one, you're not handling God's word correctly. You're being argumentative. And at this point, you're taking God's word out of context. You're twisting the scriptures. And it's even debatable as to whether or not you should even be teaching. We'll either confess your sin and come into the light, or you will hang on to your sin and show that you are not a son of God at all. Christ is not coming back for a divided bride, you guys. And he is not coming back for great theologians. He's not impressed by your intellectual abilities or your deep spiritual insights. He is impressed by a bride who loves nothing and nobody except for him. He's looking for a bride that has no other loyalty besides to him. And you guys have Christ so divided. Not only do you have Christ divided, you have Calvin divided. You are so contentious and divisive and so without understanding that not only do you have sects of Christianity, but you have sections and factions of Calvinism. I mean, you've got Neo-Calvinism. Four-point Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, new Calvinism, as if neo-Calvinism isn't enough. We have to have new Calvinism as well. Let's see here. We. <laughs> Listen, you neo-Calvinists, how dare you break off from the new Calvinists? Oh, man. Monica, Monica, Monica. So much zeal, so much passion. Oh, you need to temper it with good biblical knowledge and knowledge of your subject, too. You've got neo-Orthodoxy, uh, Christian Reconstructionism, hyper-Calvinism. And you guys are so confused and so far removed from the truth that you actually spend your time arguing about what Calvin meant about stuff that he wrote. Okay. Not only do you do this about the Bible, which the Bible tells you you're not supposed to do, you're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit to express spiritual truths to you in words that are actually in the Bible. But no, you add your words and your interpretations to the Bible, even though the Bible says that those... Monica, you've already added your interpretation. You twisted Joshua 24. You stuck it next to Romans 8, and you completely misinterpreted God's word. <sighs> scripture as it is of any private interpretation the holy spirit wrote it and the holy spirit's the one's going to tell you what it meant uh-huh not only do you do it to the bible but now you get to she's telling us what it meant by the by the way uh monica you're telling us what the bible means and a lot of your interpretations are dubious and uh in conflict with what the holy spirit wrote what am i to make of that down to the point where you're arguing over what Calvin did, what Calvin said, and what Calvin really meant. And you guys, there is no way that you will ever know the truth about that because Calvin is dead. 
All right. Jesus Christ is alive. His spirit can come and tell you what his words mean. If you have the humility to listen to your rabbi, but if you're not willing to obey the simple things that your rabbi tells you to do, like don't call yourself by the name of some other teacher who didn't die for you, who wasn't crucified for you. (sighs) If you're not willing to do those simple things, in following your rabbi, then you don't really respect him as a rabbi and you're not going to learn anything from Jesus. And so when you say the whole... What about something simple like, I do not allow a woman to speak in the church? Just, you know, just a question. Holy Spirit showed you something from the word of God. You're a liar. Now, I'm very cognizant of the fact that most of the people that are going to be listening to this message, most of you who are Calvinists, also happen to subscribe to the belief that women should not teach men. You are- yeah, okay, I'm glad you brought that up. Here we go. I can't wait to hear this. For a group of people who do not understand how 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35 work together with the scriptures that talk about Hulda and Deborah and Phoebe and Priscilla with the scripture that says that God will prophesy to you through your daughters. I am- okay, listen. Monica, here's the deal. Okay. Let's pretend for a second that you are claiming to be a prophet, that you're prophesying here as one of the daughters of the church. If what you were saying was true, if you really were prophesying to the church, then your teaching would accord with sound doctrine. Unfortunately, it doesn't. We've already shown how you've twisted God's word by taking it out of context. So already you're not into the you're not in the category of a true prophet. Now scripture does say that there are female prophets. Unfortunately, in your case you don't fit the category. The other problem is is that this is all law. The Christian message to all sinners in the church and outside of the church is found in Luke chapter 24. Look it up. Verses 40, uh, what, 44 through 47. Specifically, focusing in on that Christ said that we are to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This is all law. This isn't gospel. This is all browbeating without any word of Christ and his forgiveness. Just toe the line and do what I said. Don't worry about the fact that I haven't brought, haven't substantiated a single charge. Don't argue with me. And your problem is, is by definition, you are following a man. Monica, you don't understand what Calvinism is, and I'm not a Calvinist. Understand that this is the place that you're coming from. Now, you can call me Jezebel in your heart if you want to, but if you look at Jezebel, Jezebel encouraged people to... Who's calling you Jezebel? At this point, I just think you're a misguided individual who is swinging a sword that doesn't know how to swing it. To keep their idols. She encouraged people to bow down to idols. If you'll notice... I am not here telling you that you can keep your idols today. I'm here telling you that you have to lay them down and break down those altars and burn them. But you haven't proven that Calvinists have built altars to Calvin and that they're idolizing Calvin. Them completely. You can tell yourself that I'm here talking to you today because I'm a feminist. 
but you'll notice that feminists always stand up for the rights of women. And I am not here to stand up for my own rights or for the rights of women in general. I am here today to stand up for the right of God because you were bought with a price. Yes. Okay. A little gospel here. And you are not your own. Somebody give her a Kleenex. Oh, man. And he has a right to you because you are his temple and you are his bride. He has a right to you and you do not have a right to take up the names of idols on your lips and think that it's okay. Um, can you prove that they've made Calvin an idol? You've just made the charge but haven't substantiated it. Again, I've read Calvin and he's pointed me to Christ. Funny enough. He is a jealous God, and he loves you. And I am here to stand up for the right of my Father, and I am here to stand up for the right of Jesus Christ, to have a pure and spotless bride who loves him and nobody else. And when you guys go around joking about your Calvinism and joking about Arminianism and making jokes about the divisions in the church, you have to understand that it's not funny. Okay, <clears throat> now if, if it sounds like you're talking from experience here. I don't know who these Calvinists were who were making jokes about Arminians. Again, though, that doesn't prove your points, even if that was true. And the divisions in the body of Christ are tragic. But basically when it comes down to these theological systems, if you would... The question is their validity based upon whether or not it could be substantiated from God's word alone, sola scriptura, and whether they point us to Christ alone, solus Christus. It is not funny to God when you say, oh, well, you know, I'm a five-point Spurgeonist, ha, ha, ha. That's no more funny than if your wife came to you and joked about the guys that she slept with that week, especially if she had really done it. That's how funny it is in God's sight when you joke about your idols, when you joke about your disobedience to his holy word, when you joke about the fact that you are willing to ignore the words that he says to you in order to obey the traditions of man. That's how funny it is to him. And I'm here to stand up for his rights today because he deserves to have what he wants. And what he wants, brothers, is you. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want your mind. He doesn't want your theology just to be exactly right with all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him. And yet the scriptures tell us to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. How do you reconcile what Paul says in Titus 1 with what you just said, Monica? Again, you have a lot of zeal, a lot of passion. But it's clear that you haven't truly studied God's word and understand how to interpret it correctly. More than anyone else. And he said, if you love me, I will know it. Because then you will do what I tell you to do. That's All right, that's law. Okay, Monica, let's just lay it out on the table. Here's a problem here. Read Romans chapter 3. The purpose of the law is to show you your sin and to bring you knowledge of sin. You just preach the law to me. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, you say. 
That's law. Now, Monica, don't know you, but I, the one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty is that you're a sinner. Turn that law back on yourself, girl. And ask yourself how much you truly do love God. Because right now, I'm not hearing any gospel. You sound like pretty self-righteous to me. Yet, if you were honest with yourself and take a look at the Ten Commandments and how you stack up against them, you would realize you sin every day. Not a little, but a lot. And every time you break a single commandment, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So where's your love for God? And how is that going to save you? How can it save you? Again, none of us loves God with all of our heart. And that's the problem that Christ came to fix for us by living a perfect life under the law for us. Christ loved God perfectly for us. And he's giving us his righteousness for free as a free gift by faith. That's what the scriptures teach. And that's what Calvin teaches. That is what I'm here to do today. And you know, the truth of the matter is that God... And his wisdom has chosen something that you think is foolish. A young uh, no, don't be quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 127. And the foolishness is not you, Monica. If you were to bring to us the foolishness of the preaching of Christ and the cross, that's Christ and him crucified for our sins. That's the foolishness that shames the wise. Not you, but it's the cross. Go back and read 1 Corinthians in context woman to bring you the truth today and he has a reason for doing it that way you know as far as i'm concerned i don't care if you listen to me in particular if you can find a man that's telling you that you should obey first corinthians that you should obey jesus words and that you should shed your titles of men and men's names and men's philosophies if you can find a man that's telling you to get rid of these idols then obey him if he is speaking my father's words, just obey them. That's my will for you, that you would have life. But you know, in my father's wisdom, he didn't send you a man today. And do you know why he did that? It's the same reason that the scripture says that he put a stumbling block in front of the Jews. He sent his word to them, his son to them, the Messiah to them, in a form that was not attractive. Monica... Listen, you're exalting yourself into the place of Christ. You're not the stumbling block. The cross is. And to use your words, Christ will not share his glory with another. That's exactly what you're doing, though, by pointing us to you and not to Christ and him crucified for our sins. It says that Christ had no beauty, that they should be attracted to him. You see, God is after your heart, you guys. And when he sees that you have an idol, he is not going to dress himself up in the adornments of the world just so that you'll be attracted to him. And whatever it is in your heart that he sees that you love more than him, he hates that thing because he's jealous. And in this case, the thing that you guys have idolized it's other men. So by no means is he going to bring this rebuke to you in the form of a man. 
<laughs> it's awful presumptuous of you, don't you think, Monica? Because here's the truth. If you will not obey his holy scriptures coming through the mouth of a woman, but you would obey them if they were coming through a mouth of a man, then the truth is that it is not the word of God that you respect. It is the man that you respect. It is your... Monica, again, these are your conclusions and you're not really bringing us God's word. And the problem is, is that where's the gospel? Where's the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ's works alone. You're browbeating Calvinists for not obeying you and your interpretation. You're idle. God is content to be a stench in your nostrils if you are destined to perish. He is not going to put on the cologne of the world. He's not going to put on Satan's scent so that you will be attracted to him. If that's what you want, if the idols are what you want, he will not send his word to you in a form that looks like the thing that you love that is not him. And where does it teach that in the scriptures there, Monica? Where does the Bible clearly teach that? You claimed that you're speaking prophetically. Yet, I can't find any scriptures that back up what you just said. I don't care if you're a man or a woman or, or, or an it. What you just said is not found in scriptures. It's not taught in scriptures. And you're basically claiming that God sent you to speak to the Calvinists about this. Yet, again, scripture is clear when it comes to evidence that the testimony against somebody is based upon two or more witnesses. That's the biblical threshold when it comes to evidence. And you have brought no witnesses, no examples, nothing to substantiate the charges against Calvinists. Nothing. So today, he will not bring this rebuke to you through a man because you idolize men. That's why he's chosen a daughter to do it. He's chosen something that you think is foolish because he wants you to humble your heart to his word. Because here's the truth, you guys. Even if you think that I'm going to hell for bringing the command of God to you today, Jesus said, I don't. You're not bringing me Christ and him crucified, girl. Speak my own words to you. I don't come by my own authority because I only speak what my father says. Okay, you're quoting Christ from John chapter 12 as if it's referring to you and you went on earlier about Christ sharing his glory with another seriously because I know his command leads to life and that is what I'm bringing to you today if I spoke any of Monica Dennington's words please feel free to throw them out the window because they are worthless do not quote me as a oh, we've already done that great theologian ever I will rebuke you <laughs> don't worry there's no chance of me ever claiming that you're a great theologian Monica at least not at this point do not ever quote me my job is to serve up the word of God to you if what I've spoken to you is simply the written word of God, Jesus said, these words that I've spoken to you, the words that Jesus spoke, they are the words that will judge you on judgment day. And that is what the spirit of God is saying to you. Today. And where is the forgiveness of sins? Where is Christ crucified for our sins? 
Where's the foolishness of the cross, Monica? This is all legalism and self-righteousness. Where's Christ in the beauty and the wonder of the gospel? The one who had no sin, who became sin for us and reconciled us to God and sent us out to be ambassadors of this message of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I hear a lot of law. I hear a lot of works righteousness. I hear a lot of, you better straighten up. But I hear no mercy. I hear no grace. I don't hear anything of the kindness that leads us to repentance, of the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ, and the stumbling block and the foolishness of the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. Today, brothers, that this word that is coming through my mouth, it is coming by the authority of God because it's the written word of God. And even if I'm a scoundrel and a Jezebel and every name that you want to call me in the book, and even if I'm going to hell, the truth is, if you will obey the word that I'm speaking to you, because it is the written word of God, it will still lead you to eternal life. Because If you obey. Monica, you don't even obey. Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? You don't even obey. And you know it. The command of God brings life. So this is it's actually the gospel the call that God is putting forth to all of you who call yourselves Calvinists today through his written word. He is calling you to repent of your idolatry, to repent of your disobedience, and to repent of your divisiveness. If you have been preaching Calvinism, if you have been calling yourself a Calvinist, if you have been seeking out Christians to argue with them about the fact that they should be a Calvinist with the same vigor and and in the same public way, he is calling you to renounce that sin. And for those of you who have heard the word of the Lord today, who are Calvinists, I want to encourage you to answer the Lord's call to repentance today, that you may be freed and that he may show himself to you and that you might come to know God as you ought to know him. And for those of you, brothers, <laughs> notice that she doesn't even consider you Calvinist to be her brothers in Christ. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> She's, this is an altar call for you Calvinists. Who are just very angry right now or very irritated or have a need to prove your point. I want to... Like you just did, Monica? You just proved your points, right? But you actually didn't because you didn't bring us any evidence to substantiate any of the charges that you brought against the Calvinists. I ask you, just entreat you right now to just maybe take a deep breath, Okay. And just take a second and consider the possibility that maybe I am coming to you not because I want to lord anything over you or prove that I'm right about something and that you're wrong about something. But Wait a second. You just have gone on for 29 minutes trying to prove to Calvinists that they're committing idolatry. And at the end, you're saying you didn't come to them to try to prove? Oh, man disingenuous, confused, zealous, zeal, there's lots of zeal. Perhaps I'm coming to you because the Lord Jesus Christ sent me to you today. Uh, Monica, if the Lord sent you to the Calvinist, then you would be speaking the truth. You would have given example after example of how Calvinists commit the sin of idolatry. And called them to repent of that idolatry. You've shown that you don't know the first real thing 
about what Calvinism teaches, and yet you're calling them to repent of a sin which you haven't even substantiated that they've committed. How could you be sent from the Lord? And worse, you're not even offering the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. You're just offering naked obedience and getting with the program. And perhaps I'm here because I'm your sister. I'm your mother. And I love you. I see clearly the way that Satan is trying to deceive you. And I love you so much. I just don't want you to end up like that. I don't want you to end up so puffed up in your knowledge and in your traditions that you nullify God's word and that you nullify your chance at eternal life. Nullify my chance at eternal life? Monica. Monica, Monica. Don't you know that salvation is a free gift? Oh, Monica, let me share something with you. Let me share something with you. We're going to go to Romans chapter 3. Talking about the law. Okay? Starting at verse 1. So what advantage then is there of being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. Now, what if some were unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, by no means. Let God be true, and everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, but by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if my lie, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do, not, and why do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us of saying their condemnation is just. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We have all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside, and they have become worthless. No one is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets witness to it. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the one who declares to be righteous, the one who has faith in Christ. So what becomes of our boasting. Is it excluded? Well, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, declared righteous by faith, 
apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Of course he's the Gentile of the Gentiles too, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. We do not then overthrow the law by this faith. Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Monica, you're preaching the law, not the gospel. Anybody who is saved, it's not because they've been obedient to God, not even you, because you cannot be obedient enough. You've broken the commands of God far too many times just today to be justified in His sight by your works and by your law-keeping. Instead, salvation is a free gift offered by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The law is to condemn you and show you your sin, but the gospel declares you righteous for Christ's sake because of the great and powerful workings of Christ who lived a sinless life and is giving you his sinless righteousness as a gift to you by faith. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and your self-righteousness and of your Bible-twisting. Repent and receive the good news that Christ Jesus died even for those sins, Monica, even the sins that you committed in recording this slanderous video. Christ is offering you his mercy and grace and wants you to go and proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, not just calling men and women to repentance, but to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This good news couldn't get any better than that. And that's what's missing here, Monica. This is all law. It's no gospel. And not only that, it's not even law done lawfully because you didn't bring any witnesses to substantiate the charges. And yet scripture is clear. There are witnesses that have to be required. If you're going to make a charge, you have to substantiate it. And you've done none of that. Or that, you know, maybe you even make it into heaven, but only by the skin of your teeth and without all the honor that you could have. It is my will as your sister that you would be crowned with, with righteousness and that the works that you do for God would count, that they would not be burned up in the fire and that you barely make it, but that your works would count for something and that you would have glory and honor and that you would give glory and honor to my Father on the day of the Lord's coming. That's what I'm hoping and praying for you, whether you like me or whether you don't. Monica, let me say this. I think you're confused. You have a lot of zeal. <clears throat> whether I like you, is it, it doesn't matter. I love you for Christ's sake. Christ died for your sins, all of them, Monica. You're striving so hard. I feel for you, because I've been there. I've tried and worked that hard myself, too. And yet there's no assurance in that. There's no assurance that you're going to be able to make it. How do you know your works aren't going to be burned up? And maybe you won't make it by the skin of your teeth. You're trying so hard. And the missing ingredient in all of your striving is Christ did it all for you, girl. Christ did it all for you. Believe this good news. Don't believe me? Read Philippians chapter 3. In fact, I'll read it for you, Monica, because I love you so much. I want you to hear what Paul says about self-righteousness. First, uh, Philippians chapter 3. 
Paul writing about those who were mixing God's grace with the law. Those were called the Judaizers. He says, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen to all these works that Paul did in obeying the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But Paul says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count his good works. He counts them all as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and make share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and that by all means and any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul understood salvation is not through striving or obedience. Actually, it's through the striving and obedience of Jesus in your place. He died in your place as your substitute, and his righteousness is given to you as a gift, not having a righteousness of our own, but instead the righteousness of Christ is given to you as a gift. That's what Philippians chapter 3 teaches. And I hate to see you not know that good news and not proclaim that good news and to see only in the Bible a book of rules and laws instead of seeing that all those laws were fulfilled by Christ for you. I can still say to you with all sincerity, until I see you next time, be blessed. (sighs) There you have it. That was our review for the day. Monica Dennington waxing eloquent about calling Calvinists to repentance. And my call to her is that she repent and receive the forgiveness of sins, even for the wickedness that she committed in that video. All right, folks, we're sadly at the end of another broadcast day. I want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that uh, your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. We've made it possible for you to do that. Uh, number one, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 and send it to Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. That's Fighting for the Faith. Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Or you can visit fightingforthefaith.com, home of our archives, by the way. And uh, you can click on one of the friendly yellow PayPal donate buttons that we have posted there. It makes it possible for you to uh, send in your gift uh, instantaneously and securely right there online. Well, I uh, want to remind you, if you would like to email me, you can. Now, you Calvinist out there, I know I, I, you know, I did you a favor today. And so... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'd love to get your feedback, though. You know, it's again, pray for Monica Dennington. Pray that God opens her eyes. I mean, just so sad that she's stuck in this works righteousness mode and that, she, you know, she's oh, 
man, 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 my heart breaks every time I hear stuff like that. Well, uh, if you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on uh, Facebook. Look me up. Name's Chris Rose, bro. Or if you would like to follow us on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets, you can. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God bless you.